Recovery Sort Of is a podcast where we discuss recovery topics from the perspective of people living in long-term recovery. This podcast does not intend to represent the views of any particular group, organization, or fellowship. The attitudes expressed are solely the opinion of its contributors. Be advised, there may be strong language or topics of an adult nature. Welcome back. It's Recovery Sort Of. I am Jason, the guy who said I was going to write a book at one point, but never did. <laughs> I'm Billy. I'm a person in long-term recovery. I'm Caroline. I'm also a person in long-term recovery. And we're here with Bruce. I'm Bruce. I'm an addict. <laughs> I like it. I like, Hi, Bruce. I like keeping it simple, too. Uh, so we have Bruce on today. And, you know, if you couldn't tell by my introduction, because Bruce has actually written a book. Kind of, sort of. I guess technically not exactly, but sort of, kind of. Um, but we wanted to have Bruce in. I think uh, we've got a lot of interesting questions about the book writing process, what goes into thinking about deciding to have a book written uh, about the story of your life, like all those kind of things. We want to delve into all that. So I don't want to hold us up. I want to jump right in. Bruce, generally when we have somebody on, we like to have like a, a five to eight minute version of your story, if you can encapsulate it. I know that's going to be difficult because obviously you've got a whole book's worth of material, <laughs> but maybe we can like highlight that down and you can just tell us about yourself a little bit. I guess you start that I got into recovery in 03. I was at the end of a 20 year prison sentence. And for some reason in 03, I, I had the thought I was down in the house of correction to cut and I thought, huh. Maybe if I stop using, my life would be better. <laughs> and, and the craziest thing is, are you allowed to cuss on me? Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, oh, please. Okay. The craziest thing, it's like, where the fuck did that thought come from? <laughs> it's like, what was that? Right. Stop using. I'm 44 years old. I've been using all my life. You know, been doing time all my life. And, you know, I was a criminal. I wasn't somebody that went to work and um, my you know, my job got unmanaged. I did jobs and other people's lives got unmanageable. <laughs> you know, um, I was very predatory-ish. So when I got clean, I, I really didn't know what to do. And the thought process was, was so odd to me that I remember going out to the yard after I decided not to use anymore and saying to my homeboy, you know, I'm not using anymore, but don't tell anybody. Because I literally had no other identification. There was mm. there was nothing in me besides a using addict. Like like that was your personality. Almost. That was everything. That okay. was you know my value. Right. Was was that of a using addict? I, my I had no self esteem. I had you know no ambition. I had you know I literally had nothing. So in '05, I went in front of Judge Christian Call and uh, for a modification of sentence. My my attorney told me you know well, we need to exhaust your remedies to get you into the federal court on Gates versus Illinois, some search warrant stuff. So we went to court without the expectation of being released. And now I'd never had a visit. I had eight and a half years in. I'd never had a visit. You know, I made a couple of phone calls to my daughter, but that's basically it. My aunt once or twice, maybe. And um, we went into the courtroom. And now the SWAT team officer that had shot me is there. The prosecutor, Jill Savage, is there. And, and uh, me and my attorney and judge call. Fairly empty courtroom. The SWAT team officer started telling how his family was afraid of me. And I found that funny because he shot me, you know. And then um, the the uh, state's attorney started talking about what a bad guy I was and how I had, a, you know, back to the 70s, you know, I'd been committing fairly serious crime and um she was right you know i was all of that when it came time for for allocution i tried to tell the judge that um something had changed in me something was so different in me just having 26 months clean i'd never been to an a meeting i'd not you know i was just clean but my spirit had been changing but like when i tried to tell the judge you know tears just started rolling down my face onto my doc uniform because I was just that 14-year-old little boy, you know, mm. and uh, I didn't know how to uh, put my words together correctly. So the little woman uh, prosecutor started talking, and the judge banged his gavel and said, I see Mr. White come in and out of his courtroom for the last eight and a half years or eight years, I think was his words, and um, I don't believe he's a threat to anybody anymore. Mm. 
Mm. You know, and uh, he said he can go home. What he didn't realize is I didn't have a home. All all through this time period, the thought had come, I've made it to here. I've had a remarkable life. And that's without anything that's happened after that. Mm. You know, that my just making it here with all of this stuff is insane. Right. You know, it wasn't enough for a book, but it was like an idea, you know. And then um, I came home and uh, a guy named Steve was generous enough with his time to give me a job and he helped me out tremendously. And um, I'll be forever grateful for his time and care. And uh, I started working for him and I started getting some self-esteem. I went down to dental school and they started putting teeth in my mouth because you could kick field goals through my teeth. I had like eight of them. And um, I started taking care of myself. I went and got my hepatitis treated. It didn't work that time. It worked later. But you know, I went and started doing all these things. Got colonoscopy. All these things you do if you care for yourself. You know, it sounds crazy because I didn't think I, I had self-love till about year 15 clean. But then I look back and I actually did. I didn't know how to equate that, the things I was doing. So um, I came home. I started going to college. You know, uh, I wanted to become an addiction counselor. During that process, I met a guy named Craig, and uh, he ran this big drug treatment facility, and they had court liaisons going into the court doing the 85.5s and stuff. And I thought, man, that'd be a great job. And he was telling me about it. He said, just apply for it. You know, give me a resume. I said, I haven't paid taxes still. <laughs> you know, I really don't. He said, man, just give me a resume. So um, this is all in the book. So right. I went to, so I went to, uh, some interviews and uh, they, they gave me the job. And so like two days later, I'm in like the same courthouse. I'd ended up getting 25 years of prison time out in two different sentences. And um, I was helping people immediately. There was backlash. Uh, and Brost, uh, God rest her soul, wanted me barred from the courthouse because of it. she tried to prosecute me for a crime in 1990 that I didn't do. And uh, it was fairly harsh crime. And, it, it, it was a bit of an issue. And the only reason I found that out is when, it, when the sheriff said to me, he said, you know why everybody's got to go through the metal detector? I'm like, no, why? He says, because of you. <laughs> he says, everybody in your capacity now has to. <laughs> I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> you know, and then uh, one of my buddies later that's a judge told me, he said, yeah, he said, but a lot of us were fighting for you. Mm. They believed in you. They wanted to see what you did. They gave me room to grow. Mm. You know, so during that process, I started thinking, this is pretty crazy. I ended up doing a ninth step with Jill Savage, the prosecutor, and apologizing to her for the names I caused her after I got convicted. Um, and they gave me 20 years. I was less than polite to her. And, um, yeah, fuck her. That's that. I was calling her the C word and all that. And the only person I didn't cause that was a judge because I know I had to see him again. Was she prosecute you too or something? No, but I, I mean, I, I just think in general our legal system has too long held a negative view of people who are just struggling to try to fucking not feel miserable. Like, yeah. come on, man. We need we need the compassion from them too. Yeah, and they shot me. Yeah, yeah, come yeah on. fuck them. Yeah. <laughs> Look we at my we were even. He was shot yeah. already. Like, That's fuck what that I felt sentence. like. I felt like, okay, we, you know, this should be a, right. this should be a, a, a wise. <laughs> <laughs> you, know, you know, so, um, you know, I'm doing all that. I open a couple of recovery houses, open a house for women first, you know, say so it was a safe place to recover because of this stuff that happened. All this stuff's in the book, like I'm saying. And then um, I'm thinking like, you know, this story needs to be told, not because of me, but because of the message, mm -hmm. because of the message here is that any addict can stop using, lose a desire to use, and find a new way to live. Hmm. So you, you fast forward, you know, um, yeah, I stopped working for that drug treatment. Uh, I added treatment to my housing, and, you know, today we have 100 beds. We just purchased three properties this year. We're closing on one next week hmm. that, that will become, uh, you know, a different level of care than we're doing now. And... Um, all this stuff, you know, is is uh, somebody needs to know that you can just, like, stop using, get obsessed with some other shit, you know, and start doing some other shit. I just have never stopped working. I work, like, seven days a week. But during the process, I was going to Costa Rica with a guy named Mike Sarcone. And now Mike 
is Detective Mike in the wire. Mm. And so me and Mike would be going down and told me out. He says, what are you writing? Because when we would go, I'd be typing away. And uh, then I got voice stuff where I could just talk into my computer <laughs> and it would write. And uh, so what are you doing? I said, well, I'm putting together stuff for a book. He said, well, I know a writer, Rafael Alvarez, who wrote The Wire. Mm. I said, well, I would like to meet him. So me and Rafi got together and came to an understanding. I, I wanted to own the book, you know, but I needed someone to write it. So we came to an understanding that it worked for both of us in that capacity, where I had 100% ownership of my story, mm-hmm. you know. So we wrote a book over the next 10 years together. Um, he gets full writing credit because he put it together and made it made it the, the beautiful piece it became. And um, October 15th, Cornell Press released it, you know, which is a fairly large publishing company, you know. Um, and they did worldwide release. We've had a couple of readings and signings. We've had one, you know, there's, you know, 15 judges there, politicians, and you know, all this. And that's how my life's changed. Hmm. You know, and it keeps changing. The more work I keep putting, people say, "Why do you keep doing stuff? You're really comfortable." You know, and it's not about any stuff. It's I like doing stuff. I like creating stuff. I like being abundant, having my abundance, be able to fill other people's pockets. You know, um, it's, I, I, I don't need more stuff at this point. I'm good, you know, but I love, uh, I, it's kind of how we measure, you know, how was your year? Okay. It was good. You know, it's kind of a measuring stick in some ways, you know, for me, like, you know, success would be being content in where I am. You know, um, the one gift I had, is I've always had enough. You know, when I lived in a one-bedroom apartment on Maryland Avenue back in 05, you know, I had enough. It wasn't like I was working from a lack of. Mm-hmm. My spirit was not sending a message to the universe that I didn't have enough. I'm proud of the book. It's it's uh, a good piece. Was there any, while you were formulating this idea of writing the book, did it ever... I guess what we ran into doing this podcast is if we were to ever make money off of this, does that somehow feel like it's wrong because of the 12-step fellowship aspect, I guess? You know what I mean? There's nothing wrong with making money. There's nothing wrong. When this started, it was always about the addict that still suffered. The book's dedicated to the addict that still suffers. Any money on my part, not Raphael's, he does what he does. Right. Any money on my part goes back to the addict that still suffers. I won't make a penny. Probably end up losing twenty five or thirty thousand actually. Right, right. On the book. No, I get it. That's how we we operate in a deficit here. Yeah. <laughs> it's so so if if something happens and it makes money, it's just going to uh, you know, be for the addict. I don't I don't like I said, my life's really good. I don't need to so i'm curious did that solution come from the question of do i feel awkward making money off of this or was that just i just didn't want to make money off of this no absolutely not it, it probably came from my, my level of comfort you know, i decided that when the book actually came out right. i decided that i don't need to make money on this that that's what i would do if any money is made I got you. I got you. I feel like ours, at least for me, uh, my end of it was definitely, man, if we ever did get popular, if we ever got money coming in, I probably will feel awkward about taking a big profit out of this. You know what I mean? Like, I wouldn't mind taking a salary, but I would feel weird taking a profit. Yeah, you shouldn't, though. You know, all money is, is energy. Mm -hmm. So you give all your energy out, putting this together. And that's how you get your energy back. Mm. You know, there's nothing wrong with taking energy for your energy. This is not a 12-step fellowship. This is something you're doing on the, on, on your own. Right. You know, um, and, and our seven traditions were fully self-supporting. Mm. Well, if you want to shun away money all the time, you won't be. <laughs> right. You know, you have to get comfortable with, with an exchange of energy. If I'm giving you all my energy, I go to work every day, you know, to help the addict that still suffers. And... and the exchange is I'm helping them and, and I get finances to, to keep my family comfortable and safe and, and to expand the business. Yeah. And my wife's That's been life. in a similar, you know, with running a nonprofit, it's a similar thing. It's like, yeah. where, 
what is a, a, a adequate salary? What is like, because you hear all these horror stories of these nonprofits and these places, you know, all the money's going to waste and all yeah. that. But at the same time, you know, she went back and got her college degree and it's a full time job and she's committed a lot to it and trying to find that balance. And I think for her, it's it's practicing the spiritual principles of like, all right, what do, what is fair? What is like enough? And then, you know, what am I OK with? It also, balance. you know, what you just told me is your wife put a lot of energy into going back to school and invested in herself, and she should get energy back for that. And it's just energy. If you look at, you know, it's paper and ink. It's just energy. And if you get a lot of it, then help other people become abundant. At least you get to make those decisions and get to pick where you put your money. I support a lot of politicians that support recovery. You know, I donate to a lot of campaigns. I work on a lot of campaigns that support recovery. And um, so I get to help change our community more than if I didn't make money. If I didn't make money, I couldn't do any of that. Yeah, because that's you know? definitely what a lot of those voices hear is money. <laughs> like, <laughs> that's yeah. all you they know, hear. That's what they need. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're either born into some power or you can buy some influence, really not power, <laughs> yeah. but you can buy some influence. You can yeah. buy an ear for a moment. And, and after a while, that, that people perceive that as power. But I, I actually look under the veil sometimes and <laughs> see who's really got the juice. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. You know, it's fascinating. You have this, uh, like this energy theory of money that does seem to make it make a lot of sense and kind of, you know what I mean? Like, I, I feel like it brings some clarity to how I want to interact with money in my life. And I was like, man, why didn't I come up with something like that already, right? And I'm like, oh, because I don't have any money to think about. That's why I'm broke. I'm like, it takes somebody with some money to come up with a, with a understanding of yeah. why it's okay to have it. I started um, in 06. My second sponsor was a guy named Majid. And uh, he was from Iran. And just a beautiful soul. He stayed my sponsor even after he moved to Philly for eight years. But then I needed someone closer. I needed to have some face-to-face. -face. But um, he did all these spiritual practices. And Carolyn Mace, uh, Deepak Chopra, Eckhart Tolle, Pemra Chopra, Copra, uh, uh, Marion Williamson, uh, uh, Wayne Dyer, all these spiritualists. I would listen to them. So it's not my stuff. It's It's... You know, I've listened to enough, you know, where, where it's a chicken box. I ate the meat and threw the bone away. After I finished my 12 steps the first time, I went on about a four-year spiritual journey before I picked the first step up again. You know, and in that, I got a better understanding of energy and abundance. And, and you know, uh, people tell me you talk about God all the time. and Yeah, but it, for me, it's source energy. You know, it's it's just a vibration of the universe. It runs through us all. It's like, if you think about it, you know, we're, we're sitting here, we're interacting, but we're, we're way more connected than that. So, like, the universe was created, and we were created from the same dust as the universe, right? But what, what, what does that mean? That means there's more of us out here than in here. So once we align in here and we connect with that alignment, then everything out here starts working to make things happen different in your life. You know, you're moving along in, in a posture of love and humility, and, and and all of a sudden you're sitting down next to the person that can make some of your stuff come true you're trying to do. Mm -hmm. And that that's my story. I've had a lot of that, you mm -hmm. know, and I believe totally that's alignment with the vibrational universe. Reminds me of like the, the leaf flowing downstream to the bigger body of water, right? Like it can either work in just let the stream kind of take it and work with it or it can get caught up everywhere along the way, you know, in its own little disasters. And and leave it to a guy from Baltimore to bring a chicken box talk to, uh, <laughs> to you know how podcast, right? Yeah. Right. <laughs> you know, one of the things you said describing your story about that that really transformative early moment that kind of I mean, I it caught me off guard, I guess, just because how crazy it sounds to me today but that was the life we lived right you said that you didn't want anybody else to know that you weren't going to use anymore because they would think less of you right yeah. <laughs> right. Like, right that's crazy that that's the right. world we come from right yeah and that to us today that's like that's the most insane thing right. i've ever thought right 
you know, our insanity gets so bad. You know, we believe yeah, I was living in Bruceyville, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> and everything that was happening up here in Bruceyville. You know, I was this great guy even when I was homeless. Right. I walked past the oh, they're jealous of me. <laughs> it's fucking insane. Oh, my God. Out of my mind. Yeah. You know, just straight out of my mind. You start getting rational thought and you start, you know, developing that thought and structuring that thought and not letting the negative thought come in as much and and start working with some positive affirmations. I do them every night, every day. You know, I do all this positive stuff because left to my own, you know, I'm truly fucked. You know, I'm truly fucked. This looks like a really good package. I walk into a courtroom today, you know, I'm in a, you know, beautiful suit. I'm, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm respected to judge. Hey, Mr. White, how are you today? Your Honor, how are you? You know, it's good to see you. It's good to see you too. You know, maybe I just came out of another judge's chambers, you know, Mm -hmm. after, you know, bullshit. (laughs) What are your kids doing, you know? You know, would you left at the gym? Just, you know, these relationships, and I look at my life, and it's like we had a, a book reading at the facility. One of the judges came up to me, and he said, you are the only person that could bring this group together. Mm. He said, you got judges here. I don't know, and this is a very powerful man. You know, He's like, you got judges here. You got Scott Schellenberger's here, and if you're going out Tuesday, vote for Schellenberger. Thank you, <laughs> in Baltimore County. <laughs> That's my buddy. He's about recovery, though. Mm-hmm. You know, he's about, you know, he's a state's attorney of Baltimore County, but he's about recovery. So you you look at, at what I get to do, what I get to do is promote recovery in a place that didn't used to hear it. Mm-hmm. I'm the only example they get a lot of days of what recovery can look like. And I hear it all the time. Mm-hmm. So we're, we're blessed and honored. How hard was it for you to decide to, uh, for lack of better words, recover out loud especially in your i want to say industry or or job environment like that had to be a really tough choice but i mean i guess a lot of them knew you already so maybe it wasn't that tough of a choice (laughs) maybe it was like accidental yeah when you're walking out people that literally put you in prison it's Uh, not yeah you better have something (laughs) well i I guess we're doing something different yeah what i was thinking with that is uh so often in our history it seems like people did not take certain job positions from a recovery standpoint right like it was harder to be a nurse it was harder to be a doctor like there was limitations it felt like and if you went into those industries you remained quiet and sort of hidden and secret to keep your job safe and yet that always eliminated like you were talking about you're the only you know version of recovery or possible recovery out there for a lot of these people right same in the medical field there's not a lot of nurses running into other recovering people because they're all secret because they don't want to lose their jobs but it's we need people in these different job industries where people don't see recovering people we need that for people to believe in it yeah well the 12th tradition gives me the right to uh stay anonymous or not you know, right. it, it as a as a fellowship, it's one thing. But my own personal life, um, what what I know is that uh, I I get to promote change and get give people different vantage point of what the recovering addict. And then at my uh, celebrations every year, there's a few judges come every year. They get to see a group full of us. Mm-hmm. You know, and they, they meet my sponsor, and they meet this guy, and they meet that guy. And every year, the guys are like, hey, how you doing, Dennis? And, you know, because mm-hmm. they've gotten there, you know. Uh, you got to look back at history, you know, the the Jews, the blacks, the Hispanics. They were all, you know, uh, the, the government always took their funds until they came together as a group and started voting as a group. Mm-hmm. The recovering addict didn't. So when I started working in the courts in 09, the first elections I worked on were judges' elections. And um, circuit court judges have to be elected. They're appointed to the position, then they get elected to a 15-year term. And people ask me why I did it. I did it because we need to start voting as a block as people in recovery. So Annapolis and the Senate and the the Congress stopped taking our money. Mm -hmm. We don't have power alone, but together. As a group, we have power. And today, it's better. It's way better than it was. Mm-hmm. Um, in 2018, we had 31 poll workers come from One Promise, and One Promise's people to work polls. And we changed the local election. One of the 
orphan court judges was losing. And then when the precincts we worked came in, we put him over the top and he won. Hmm. So we may not be able to at this point change a national election because there's not enough of this we recover and we vote mentality. But we do recover and we do vote. We do pay taxes. So getting us to vote as a block has been germane to my process in the courts and letting people know where I am. I don't, I don't know. I'm not ashamed that I'm in recovery. I'm really proud of it. Hmm. You know, I'm ashamed that I, I spent, you know, almost 12 years of my life in a prison and I caused all this harm. But, you know, I've worked through the steps and that stuff I live with. Right. This episode has been brought to you in part by Voices of Hope, Inc., a nonprofit recovery organization made up of people in recovery, family members, and allies. Together, members strive to protect the dignity of those that use drugs and those in recovery by advocating for treatment, harm reduction and support resources, and mentoring. Please visit us at www.voicesofhopemaryland.org and consider donating to our calls. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Bruce, what would you say? Um, I don't know if you've encountered this yet, but what would you say to people who say you're breaking the 11th tradition? Well, I'm not promoting anything. Yeah, it's so it's attraction, <clears throat> right? Um, it's it's anonymous at the level of press, radio, and films. Yeah, well, um, that that's about the program. My life is my life. Nobody owns my life but me. Hmm. You know, my life's mine. I can talk about anything I want. And you know, I I don't think I've mentioned Narcotics Anonymous once. I mentioned <clears throat> a program I work, and really good things can become antiquated. Hmm. You know. It doesn't mean they weren't really good, but sometimes there's a time for some changes. We're, we're probably going to take the penny away because it's antiquated. <laughs> Daylight savings time. And we've talked about that, too, <laughs> just doing this podcast and stuff. I mean, we talk about being in recovery. We talk about the program. And in the beginning, I think we had some of those discussions. And it was like, you know what? It's you know, We're just talking about what's out there. We're not trying to be representative of anything. Right. We're sharing our story and our experience and telling people what we did and how it works. And You just said it. It's your story. Right. You know, um, I'm not going to be held captive to uh, uh, 30, uh, uh, 1935 writings <laughs> by, by, you know, somebody that, that uh, everything's fine and, and the traditions are wonderful and the steps are wonderful. But I've been cleaning it a while. I get to make a decision what I'm going to do. Mm-hmm. You know, if we don't talk about it, then how does that addict that still suffers is walking up Pulaski Highway to go get one more? How does he know that there's that you can change without us four sitting here? How do they know? I'm, you know, I shot it from the rooftops. Fuck them, <laughs> you know. And the the purists, fuck them too, you know. <laughs> this is my kind of episode. Fuck everybody. Yeah. <laughs> not, not that it's good or bad. It's just I get to make a decision what I want to talk about and what I want to do. I'm not. I'm not standing out there with a sign. You know, go to Narcotics Anonymous. It'll save your fucking life. But yes, it will. <laughs> um, you know, I'm telling you that my story. You know, and it's mine. It's not Narcotics Anonymous's story. It happens because of Narcotics Anonymous. Mm-hmm. You know, it doesn't happen without Narcotics Anonymous, but it it actually happened to me. Right. You know, right. it's my story. Ooh, I like that. You know, I like all this. <laughs> yeah. So I got another one for you. Okay. Um, you said that you dedicated the book to the still suffering addict. Yes. And, and you're doing this because of that. Um. So Billy Gardell wrote yes. the intro to your book. Um. In that, he says. Uh, reading this book is a part of what you can do to treat your addiction. Do you agree with that statement? I think um, reading the book 
can give somebody hope. I don't know if I would call it treatment at all. But you know who <laughs> Billy Gardell is? I don't. No, I was not you familiar with him. You know the show Mike and Molly or yeah. Bob Hart's Ambrosia? Whatever. I know the Mike These and Molly These are like show, sitcoms. Yeah. He's Mike the big heavy guy. Uh, oh, okay. that played Mike. Mike, yeah. yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah, like yeah no, I didn't make comedian. that connection. He's in recovery. Yeah. Uh, Raphael met him um, out on the West Coast and, and was telling him about the project. And generous with his time he, he yeah that's awesome he uh i mean he's like a famous dude and uh oh, that guy. he wrote a forward for us no no revenue was changed hands wow. he felt very strongly about the book and was very happy to be a part of it yeah so i mean i want to go back to a minute with the the moment in court with the judge where they Whatever had happened where he could see that you changed and all that. Have you ever got a chance to go back and talk with him about that and like what was it or what happened there or why? <laughs> I get to I get to see a lot of judges and I get to go to chambers all the time and hang out and talk about cases and this and that. And Judge Call got sick. He retired soon after that and would sit like out in Cecil County and stuff is what retired judges do. They travel. They still do 90 days, and then they get their full check. And then Judge Call got sick, and he was in Towson. I tried to get to see him. Judge Steinberg was trying to get me in to see Judge Call. But Judge Call was sick that day and said he had to go home. So I didn't get to see him. So Judge Call died without me and him meeting, but he knew about me through Steinberg, Mm. who Judge Steinberg was my lawyer for years, and Bobby Steinberg is retired and he's my very good friend today. So when Ju- Judge Call died, they have these big portrait ceremonies and they have local delegates and, and local senators and such will be there and judges and everything. And so, uh, like, they have these people speak there. So the family had me speak. Mm. You know, I spoke in between uh, Judge Tim Martin and, and uh, Court of Special Appeal Judge Joe Murphy. So you walk into this room and there's a line. It's a ceremonial courtroom, like nine or ten judges in robes, and then there's a jury box full of people and judges in suits, and the the gallery full of people. And here I am, you know. I've worked on this uh, speech for for two weeks. I talked to everybody, you know, about little anecdotes about Judge Call. I got up there and I just ripped it up and said, "I'm just going to speak from my heart." By the, by the time I was done, half the place was in tears, you know, mm-hmm. including myself. It was funny because, like, it was so emotional. I felt like I had to break the ice, right, mm-hmm. you know, and give people a second, you know. So my, my good friend Judge Robinson had told me when I went and talked to him about it, he said, Bruce, just don't drop the F-bomb. Mm-hmm. So I was telling uh, uh, Gary Glennon told me this. He was his clerk. He's a judge now, and he was telling me this story. That story, I said, and Judge Robinson told me, just don't drop the up on the whole place, broke up laughing, you know, <laughs> and then I just left. But it was very emotional, and I was very honored. I'm the only person in this capacity that's ever spoke at one of those ceremonies. Mm-hmm. A weird thing is like two or three years later, I live out in Faustin. I, I ride up to, uh, there's a, I think it's a highs up top there, and I was getting gas in my chopper. I was deciding to take my chopper or my full dresser. I said, I'll just take the chopper out. And I pull up and I'm getting gas. And this guy comes up and says, hey, how you doing? I'm like, hey, what's up, man? I said, man, that's a pretty bike, you know. And it says one promise on the gas tank. He says, what's one promise? I said, well, I have a treatment facility in Baltimore. It's called One Promise. He says, my brother was a judge and let a guy go. Uh, uh, and the guy's doing real good and got a treatment facility. I said, who's your brother? He says, Christian Call. <laughs> and this guy's name was Pete Call. He had severe alcohol addiction. Wow. You know, and I thought, okay, so God wants me to help this guy, <laughs> you know? Right. Source energy, whatever you want to call it. Just brought me and him together in some fucking parking lot in the middle of nowhere, <laughs> you know? So I'm talking to him. I give him my car, and, but I've never heard back from him. Mm-hmm. I thought he's told me he's drinking too much and, right. you know, his life is messed up. And I said, I want to help you. I said, I said, that's a way I could really say thank you to your brother and, you know, I said, I want to help you. I, you know, he said, I don't even know if I haven't tried. So I don't care if you got a chance. Just come over. I'll help you. Because that's a moment of just compassion and humanity that it's it's easy to gloss over, but that's an amazing 
moment in some people's lives that some people never get. And of course I have the opposite story. Like I went and I had, and it was only a year sentence, but I went back in front of the judge cause I violated. And he said, remember I told you I was going to give you that year where well, you're getting a whole fucking year and gave me the whole year. So. <laughs> yeah. I had, I had a dick judge too. Uh, Al- Althea Hardy. Maybe? I see a handy handy in Baltimore City. I wanted to piss on her fucking grave, dude. Like I was like living right, and she still gave me all my backup time. I have time. no opinion. No, I got strong opinions. Fuck her. <laughs> We're but fucking nah. people today. Fuck her. Still. Nah, it's good that the courts see those examples of people change, though, because you figure how many people just continue that cycle of rolling in and out and not changing and like now for me like i've changed and i haven't been back to court and i've never seen any of those judges or lawyers and i fucking hope i never have to (laughs) you know what i mean Like, like, like they're out of my life and i don't see them and i'm doing something else now you know so it's good that they see that change does happen i get a lot of court order clients and when you get a court order client there's huge responsibility to us when something happens to report it and report it with a quickness so when, when they finish, I, I recommend to them to write the judge and let them know so the guy coming behind you. Mm-hmm. I said, I can't be the only one. You got to write them and let them know. Right. Thank you. You know, I'm doing better today. Mm-hmm. And whatever next week looks like, it looks like. But today I'm doing better. You know, so I recommend that. Some of them do and some don't. But it's important for us, you know, um, people that have gained uh, some recognition in society to talk about our recovery, mm-hmm. you know, to, uh, you don't have to wear it on your sleeve. And if you don't want to talk about it, you don't have to, you know, right. but it's important for some of us. I got a question and I imagine this doesn't probably stand out to you because you're in the environment daily, but it drives me fucking crazy that we got to call him your honor. Like, I hate the whole pomp and circumstance around that and putting it. him on a pedestal. <laughs> I really? Love it. Oh, I fucking hate <laughs> it. No, nah, it's cool. Fuck I, them, dude. I'll be in. I'll be in. No, no, no. It's, it's, it's the decorum. <laughs> it's shaking the hand. That's all it is. That's all it is. You know, and I, I you know, good morning, your honor. How are you today? Mm. And then uh, that's all I have for right now, your honor. May I step back? And you may ask permission to step back, you know? And that's all I have today, Your Honor. May I step back? Mm. So that means I'm leaving that one. But then, you know, I walk into their chambers and it's like, Bruce, you see that motherfucker? He thought I didn't. (laughs) And and that's how it is. But we need to have a society that has some pomp and circumstance. Mm. We need to have, this guy can take your life. You know, a circuit court judge can sentence you to death. You want to go up and say, hey, hey, homie, what's happening? Uh, that that ain't. We do have that and other stuff. Like, I think of, like, my job. Like, I cuss a lot in my normal, everyday right. vernacular or whatever. But at work, when I'm talking to customers, I don't talk. I don't cuss at all. You know what I mean? I don't use any swear words. I, I cuss kinda, you know. Yeah. Well, you have a different line with of work. I'm customer service. I'm dealing people, with people. I don't give know. a fuck. We're all cussing <laughs> today. No. I mean, yeah. Look, if I, if I work with an individual that's more religious or their values and morals lead them to not really appreciate cussing. I mean, I tone mine down too. It's look, I don't have a problem with ritual. I think ritual is good for humanity, right? We could use that, but any pomp and circumstance that separates or was created to separate the elites who could learn the mannerisms and the the poor people who couldn't bothers the fuck out of me mm-hmm. because that's the only purpose for all the the manners and etiquette and everything else was to, you know, who was allowed in the tea room with the king and who the fuck's not. Well, you can go to, you know, George Orwell on Animal Farm. <laughs> right. You know, you can. And, and everybody's equal, but some are more equal than others. Mm, unfortunately. <laughs> and it's just going to be like that. Mm. You know, um, that, that's life. Yeah. You know, you're born in the United States. It's real easy for us here to say, you know, oh, yeah, we went to, yeah, go, go live in India for five minutes. Go live in Kenya. Go live in one of these third world countries where your life isn't worth anything and getting medicine's nothing. And right. they're not arguing about getting vaccinated or not because they don't have a choice. Right. You know, you can go to these countries in Africa right now in the Sudan. We're losing more elephants due to drought than we than we are to to poachers. Mm-hmm. You know, um, there's horrific shit going on in the world. People in the United States just think like. Everybody's like, you know, needs to like do things, you know, uh, like we're doing. We're, we're the elitists. 
you know, you sitting there with a podcast, you're in the lead as home. <laughs> Sorry to tell you, you know, I don't disagree. Your equipment I don't disagree. costs more than what they make a year. And and I don't disagree with that, right? And and I don't look. And I, I mean love, that in a good way. Yeah, no. And I I love that I live in a country that I'm allowed to sit here and say fuck our government, right. fuck <laughs> all these people. I don't like. I appreciate right. that, right? But I also, I, I guess. I don't know. My goal is to change the world in some small way, right? If that's changing some people's minds about how they think of things so that more of us can move forward and say, hey, this shit ain't right. Let's all be equal right. everywhere. Uh, maybe that's what I do. So I'm just going to keep pitching that. <laughs> I think when when I look at human beings, I'm looking at our six and seven step tells me not to look up or down at anybody. Mm. So that makes it my job. I'm following decorum. They're not better or worse than me. They're yeah. absolutely equal to me. When I go to their chambers and we talk, we're two, just two guys talking. But we have to have some social decorum and, and some uh, uh, decorum in the courtrooms. We have to have a, an order. We're, we are the order. I mean, you get to pick 12 juries of your peers. I'll, I'll buy in. But then if that's the case, the judge also has to use a term of respect for everyone he addresses in the court instead of, you know, young man or listen here, if sir. If they don't, or, that's the judge. That has yeah, nothing them. to do with this, with the, with the seat. Yeah. You know, I'm not, I'm not honoring the person. I'm honoring the position. It's not the, the burden person. of the position. It's the position. Okay. Well, maybe like you say, maybe that's why it is important for us. You know, as addicts or even as members of the community to get involved in that shit, yeah. to know what kind of people we're putting on those benches. Because I know in our local elections, there's usually the few key positions I know to county executive right. or whatever. But then when it comes to those judges and like school board fucking members, like yeah. I don't know nothing about any of those people. Well, this name looks familiar. Right. Yeah. I've seen this in a cartoon. There's only one choice, you know, like right. you get one choice or a write in. Right. Yeah. So, so like when you look at judges, they're so germane to how we live and the decisions they make affect us directly. I have judges that send clients to me because of our relationship and they trust what I tell them, you know, because I have that thing that you guys taught me to have integrity. Mm. So when they come up for election, we can swing those elections. If you have a judge that's against recovery, I'm not working on their campaign. I'm not helping them. Matter of fact, I'm putting my money and, and my time and my connections on the other side of that. Right. You know, win or lose. You know, at least I did what I felt in my heart. You know, because there's, there's good people and bad people everywhere. Larry Hogan's done a really good job for the most part with his appointments. O'Malley, not so much. Hmm. He did some good appointments I liked. And uh, some of the worst judges I see on the bench today appointed. They happen to be district court judges, and uh, they happen to um, not ever come up for an election, a district mm. court judge. They're a 10-year appointment. Hmm. I wonder if, like, Schaefer would have had more shitty judges on the court, but just by the time you got around to it, like, all those guys were retired. Retired, cause... yeah. It's a mandatory retirement at 70. Huh. So there's a constant wheel. You would think Congress could do something like that. <laughs> really? Yeah. So I mean, nice. president, maybe? Yeah. 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 Maybe no president's yeah. over yeah. 70. president's yeah. fucking 82 yeah. or something. I mean, people over 70. <laughs> His wife's like, no, this way, Joe. <laughs> and, and and I'm not knocking any older adults, but I would imagine. Thank you. We yeah. totally, like, we have the understanding that generational differences exist. Right. So somebody over 70 is not going to be in touch with the populace of the United States. I mean, it's just, it's not really possible. They're yeah. kind of outdated. Sorry, old people. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I think they should time out, too. Yeah, yeah I think they just should, you know, uh, I think 70 is good. Well, at 70, they're still needed for a very valuable thing, right? You could retire from Congress at 70 and be a congressional mentor to the young people coming next who need your expertise and your experience. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. you two working together could do a lot more. I don't know. We're getting way the fuck or off Or you could though. just get the fuck out of the yeah, way. Yeah, go yeah, to yeah, that too. That's <laughs> you know, Fuck them too. Right, you probably made enough money by now. <laughs> yeah. You're probably good. Go retire and fish and golf, <laughs> motherfucker. Jesus Christ.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What was the most surprising part of the process of book writing to you? Like when you went into it thinking, I'm going to write a book because I've thought about writing a book a bunch yeah. of times. When you actually got into the process of doing it, like what caught you off guard? And you were like, oh, man, I didn't know it worked like this. When we started writing Don't Count Me Out, I came up with the name in meditation. And then during the process, when we actually got a big publisher interested, that was the day I signed that contract with Cornell Press. I was like, fuck yeah. Because <laughs> you, know, you see a lot of people self-publish. Mm -hmm. yeah. But when you bring a big publisher and their name's on it, right. so they do all this fact-checking for two years. That's all they did hmm. was fact-checking all this crap. Wow. Like fact-checking events in your life or just some of the details? The probably the names. Wow. The probably details the, of yeah. the books. That's crazy. And then they get, uh, you know, where the people allow them to use their name or not. You'll see sometimes it's just like initials in the book. That's because we didn't get it permission. Mm. You know, with huh. those folks, they literally checked with uh, uh, one of the the doctors in England who had to leave the country after a bunch of shit in the seventies. They literally, you know, talked to him. You know, wow. I, I went over to Italy and met with him. That's crazy. And we discussed what was going to be in the book. And that was in two thousand eighteen or nineteen. Mm. And then Cornell met with him on the phone, and Raphael. And they came up with that, and it's just a process. And it's a grueling process. You know, you can write a book and self-publish it. And it's just, it's it's basically not fact-checked. Right. It's your interpretation. There's stuff that I had one view of. And then once it got through, the writer has another view because he talked to two other people that were there. Mm, yeah. and, That's crazy. And so, so you get more, because my view is my view. You right. know, uh, uh, Billy's view is, is his view. Mm -hmm. You know, and then you put both of them together and somewhere in the middle is actually probably closer to what happened. Right, right. You know, because right. for whatever reason, we remember things differently. Yeah. You know? Well, I mean, you were a little high. I was a little <laughs> some high. Of it. it's a, it's, for some of it. I, I read the book and um, it's pretty good. It's, it's pretty accurate, you know. It's funny because I'm picturing, and I know this is always like stereotyping in my head, but I'm picturing like this, this really like suburbanite soccer mom drove her minivan to work. She's like sipping her, her English breakfast tea or something, fact checking your stuff. And she's like, there is no way that this guy robbed this place and did all these. Oh, here's his court record. I guess he did. Yeah. <laughs> like, just, you know, oh, yeah. shocked. Like she's probably usually fact checking like how many elephants were in the zoo in San Diego or something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like, yeah. Yeah, there's stuff. I mean, it's, uh, you know, there's there's one part where this guy, uh, we just robbed this pharmacy, and we were staying at the Pine. You'd rob a pharmacy and then get a motel room and start selling your product. And we were selling our product, and this woman that I used to uh, spend time with came over with this guy. And my boy Whitney was in the other room. It was two rooms, and I was in the front room, and the guy pulls a gun on me. You know, so the broad had set me up, you mm -hmm. know, and uh, he's uh, arguing with me and I'm arguing back. I'd had a gun pulled on me before. I wasn't that, you know, I right. just wasn't that impressed. <laughs> you still weren't getting my shit, right. you know. Um, and then I hear and I look and it's Whitney and Whitney just leveled his sawed off right at the guy's rib cage and walked up and stuck it against it and says, if you don't get your gun off my man, I'm going to cut you in half. Hmm. And Whitney was about to cut him in half because that's who the fuck he was. You know, he loved me. You know, right. he's dead now. God rest his soul. But stuff like that, it's like, you know, you look back and it's like, you know, I'm arguing with somebody with a gun in my face. Mm -hmm. Man, fuck you. you know, right. Just, you know, insanity. Yeah. You know, just addiction. You're not taking my drugs. That's the only thing that makes me a value right now. Is those drugs? Nobody cares about me, loves mm. me, or wants me. But as soon as I have all that, 
you know, the motivation to rob stores. As soon as I have all that, you like me, mm-hmm. and I'm okay. Yeah. Well, and and this is proven through research. Now they've done the research where they take people and they lower their ingestion of water, say any liquid, basically. They make them thirsty by not giving them anything to drink for a couple of days, but they've tested it out. And basically what they understand is if you walk across a desert and you're dehydrated and there's a glass of cold ice water in front of you and somebody stands between you and that ice water, you'll fucking stab them. The right. most sane person will stab them. And it's that same feeling with that drug use. We needed that. We needed the acceptance. Yeah. We needed everything it gave us. And it was life right. or death. So fuck that gun. Right. I, I need this. Yeah. Like, I just don't yeah. know what to tell This you. is mine. Right. Yeah. I, I, I got no real good answer. <laughs> right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. But um, Bruce, anything you regret specific to the book and this process? No. There's no reason to regret any of it. It's not going to change it. Hmm. There's stuff I'd have done different, maybe. In the book? Yeah. yeah. Could you give us one of those? There is a part in there that, that caused somebody harm, and I would have just left that out. It was to show spiritual growth in me, and I, I, I didn't catch that it would cause them harm. And then when they called me up and had harm, I felt bad, and I told them, I love you. And I'm sorry, there's really nothing I can do, and I didn't see it like that. Because mm-hmm. the person was germane to me sitting here today. I'm not sitting here today without this guy. Gave me my first job out of prison and all that. That didn't mean to cause them harm. Right. I didn't write the book, so I gave probably 30 or 40 stacks of paper from different trips from Columbia, wherever I was at, Belize. And I would just write when I was there. I'd write in the morning. I'd write at night. When the sun was coming up, I'd drink coffee and write. When the sun was going down, I'd drink coffee and write. You know, and in between, I'd go out on the beach. Right. You know, and that's what I did on vacation, you know, and I took, you know, a lot of vacations. And, and uh, most of it was written like that. And then he would take that and make it worthy of, Mine was just disjointed bullshit. Right. Now, you, you kind of, you didn't answer this question. You sort of answered some of the things it wasn't for you, I think, in the early part of this conversation. But I'm curious, what was the motivation for writing the book when you first thought of it? Like it, The message. Okay, because I think you've, you've labeled out, like, it's not money, it's not fame, it's not about it's success. The message. Was it the message because you felt you needed it told, or was it the message because you felt it was going to be useful for somebody else. I thought it was going to be useful for somebody. Yeah. I felt like, you know, if everything worked perfectly, mm-hmm. this would get into somebody's hands, laying on a bunk on lockup up on up at uh, 18601 Roxbury Road, and they would be reading it and be like, fuck, this guy was on lockup right here, H1, that's where I am. Mm-hmm. You know, and, right. and maybe change his life. Right. You know, maybe change the guy's life that's in detox for the first time. Uh, maybe the guy in the recovery house, man, you got to read this fucking shit. You know, hmm. maybe it changed their life. Or the mom or dad, they need to have hope because their kids out there. Right. You know, maybe it'll give them some hope. Hmm. You know, maybe it'll give them some direction, you know, that they didn't have. It's not about me. It's hmm. about the message of hope for somebody else, for the family to hold on one more fucking day. Right. For, for the addict to maybe really give it a try. You know, to to give themselves a break. You know that it's okay. It's okay. We get it. You're in pain. We get it. The only thing that used to stop the pain is this, but you still think it will, but it won't. But we, we'll we'll help you. Right. You know, you can change this. It's important. You know, you can call it recover out loud or whatever. I just think it's fundamentally important to help the still suffering anybody. My my job seems to be with the addict. Mm-hmm. You know, and this just is another tentacle of that. I feel like we we started this podcast and we were like, oh, man, we got a few listeners. That's neat. Right. And then it was like we would keep going on. And I think we enjoyed doing it for one. I mean, we meet up here, we hang out and we fucking talk on Sunday mornings. Right. You know what I mean? Like right. it's an enjoyable right. thing. It's not like we right. don't like it. So there was there was the piece of we enjoyed it, but it was like, how would we measure success for this? Right. How do we measure? Like, is it a certain amount of listeners? Is it this? Is it that? And I think ultimately for me, it ended up being the same thing I used like with sponsorship. Like if I help or plant a seed or change or shift the direction of one life, that's a fuck enough. That's- one life's enough. 
it's huge. Right. And so if it, we touch one life with the podcast and we've gotten, I mean, it's not an exorbitant number, but 20, 30, 40 messages over the course of three years of like, hey, listen to your show. I really feel like it helps my life through the middle of the week. And I got some good ideas. And it's like, that's enough. That's perfect. That's fucking enough for us. Yeah. And, and I guess I just didn't know if that was enough for you or if yeah, that felt plenty. good enough. Awesome. Uh, when, when you said... You know, and we enjoy it. That that should be enough right there. Yeah, it <laughs> that is. should be enough right there. <laughs> it is. How, how many things do you actually enjoy? You know, anymore. You know, right. we get older. We got bills. We got responsibilities. You get health issues at my age. <laughs> you know, you get health issues and stuff. And you, you got this stuff. You know, and the, the things I enjoy. I enjoy. Yesterday, Tabby and I went went riding on the Harley, and that's like my favorite shit to do. Is be with the person I love the most. Mm-hmm. You know, she's hanging on my back, and we're just. Weaving through Pennsylvania, getting lost. Yeah. I'm like, where you gonna go? Make a right. You know, <laughs> we make a right. Right. And then what do you gonna do? Make a left. <laughs> and then we make a left, and we just go and get lost and just spend that 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 time together. You don't get enough of that. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, you can get lost in movement. My life is so overwhelmingly busy. I get lost in movement. Mm-hmm. You know, I forget to uh, tell people I care about them. I forget to sit with uh, the addict that still suffers and help them. At my work, I get to do that. So I'm lucky with that. Mm-hmm. We got, we're, we're triage. I got mm-hmm. guys that just put a sign down and came in. We buy them good lunches. We care about them. And the, the thing is, they come up to my office and they're like, I've never met the owner of a facility before. <laughs> and I tell them that's half the fucking problem. <laughs> People got into it for the wrong thing. I got into it to help people. It just became something that created enough revenue that my life is really good. In 2008, when I started One Promise and took my first client January 25th of 09, when I was driving around in a box truck, Ross let me to pick up stuff from FreeCycle to make this recovery house for women. Mm -hmm. There wasn't thought. The thought was to help these women because they didn't have anywhere safe. They had some predatorial places. And someone came to me and asked me, and then in meditation, it became to do this. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, when I was spending all my weekends doing that for four or five months with a woman named Patty helping me, oh, there, there wasn't a thought about where we are now. I mean, today we got, you know, 11, 10 or 11 houses, 100 beds, you know, we got mental health, we got you know, all kinds of levels of care. What It grew organically. But we always have stayed in the posture where the most important thing is that addict that's trusting us. You know, and I, I have a privilege of working with all these beautiful souls that believe the shit I believe. You know, you can work from a place of love, you know, or not. You know, whatever that other place is, it ain't love. I just choose to work from a place of love to care and try to provide, you know, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. You know, you need that bottom foundation. Mm-hmm. You need to feel cared about. You need to have a safe place, and you need to feel secure. Before that, you can't do nothing. With right. Them. So we house them, we feed them, and we care about. Them. And then the growth you would hand off to your clinicians and and your house managers and and your psychiatric nurse practitioner and all these beautiful souls that know how to do that. My addiction counselor, but. I don't do a lot of counseling anymore. In right. Well, and the way you lay that out, I mean, it, it follows what we know with the research, right? If we can provide people with a safe, structured, you know, scheduled routine environment that feels stable and secure, there's a lot more space for healing and growth with other things once you calm yeah. that nervous system excitement down, you know, and we got to get that calm environment first or none of the other shit works. Right. So that's beautiful. Do you feel like, you were already kind of, you know, so to speak, out about your recovery or, or unanonymous. So do you think taking that to a national or worldwide level changes that or increase, increases any risks for your life or anything I, like I that? I think it's happening anyway. Uh, you know, with that, it was, you know, I think uh, Billy Gardell, I mean, he wasn't ashamed about writing in front of that book. He's got 15 years now. The other day, celebrated in May, 15 years uh he talks about it and it's a guy worth, you know, a hundred million dollars or whatever. He's got two big shows on TV and he wrote that forward and very unanonymously. Mm-hmm. 
You know, Eminem talks unanonymously. Elton right. John talks unanonymously. Rob Lowe, you know, there's there's all of these, you know, people in recovery. Matt, whatever his name is, LeBlanc, was that it? Was one? Oh, Friends. Friends oh, yeah, guy? Matt LeBlanc. Yeah. Oh, yeah. no, it wasn't him. It's Matthew the other Perry? one. That's him. Matthew Perry. Yeah, one, yeah. One Chandler. I, I, oh, Chandler. I'm a little old for Friends. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you guys was the Friends group, you know? <laughs> I had happy days. <laughs> I had heroin like, during Friends, but that's all right. <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> no, but, um, yeah, it's at a point Well, we have a month now, you know, it's recovery month, and it's like, oh, really? That's nice. <laughs> yeah. It's recovery year for me. It's recovery day. <laughs> I got recovery yeah. day. <laughs> we, we like to dangle months to marginalized populations. Like, here you go. <laughs> yes. Have a month. Right. We'll no. Ignore, we'll ignore you the other 11, but right. here's your month. <laughs> here's your month. <laughs> Literally, I had a, a television station tell me, oh, recovery month just ended. Sorry. Oh, <laughs> I'm like... <laughs> Meanwhile, I look at the problem, you know, the crime property. Yeah, yeah, and the shooting. Like, what do they think all the fucking shootings in Baltimore are yeah, happening yeah. over, you know? Yeah, yo ain't shooting shorty for nothing but right. a dime back. The 11 <laughs> shootings they had last weekend, probably most of that's over drug addiction. Yeah. Like, <laughs> Good yep. So, Bruce, uh, what would you recommend or suggest or what kind of tips did you learn along the way for anybody else that feels this creative endeavor that they want to take on, that they feel like their message of hope also could touch some people. And maybe, maybe theirs isn't prison, right? Maybe they're touching the guy who's working at the Amazon workhouse or, or who's lived under the bridge. But what would you tell them in your experience? I think if you have something to write about, I, th I think you do yourself a disservice not to. Getting it published is the thing. Mm -hmm. You know, if you have to self-publish it, I'm not sure that's the way I would have gone at all. You know, I would have probably just not, I might have had a book right. ready to publish, but if nobody had published it, I probably wouldn't have self-published. Then you have no help. You know, then how are you getting your message out there? Did I just do this? Uh, was this over ego attachment? Mm -hmm. um, why am I doing it? If it was supposed to be out there, wouldn't somebody have picked it up and sent it to five people? You know, um, I would just look at what you're doing. You feel like something should be out there. For me, I felt like I needed to get someone to write it. I didn't feel like I did not feel strongly about my set of writing skills. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. I, I mean, I want to recommend just for anybody that's out there that's ever thought about writing a book and maybe stop themselves because they're like, oh, that's egotistical or oh, that's this or oh, no, that's it's that. Not, yeah. It's therapeutic yeah. to write about the shit that happened in your life. Now, if you are super early and you have not done any work around a topic, maybe you don't want to trigger yourself writing about a situation <laughs> yeah. that was not good for you. Right. But if you're pretty solid at some point and you just want to start jotting down notes about situations with the thought that maybe one day this is a worthwhile story to tell, do that shit because that's a good therapy practice anyway, just writing about it to kind of get it out. I think you can just journal like what's happening in your life and at some point if it should be a book, you'll know. The universe will let you know. Right. You'll be sitting on an airplane next to some fucking writer and you'll be talking. He said, that's an interesting story. You know? Yeah. That's right. how it happens when you get in touch and aligned <laughs> how, with the universe. I love what fancy people talk about. You'll be sitting in Belize talking to some <laughs> fucking fancy writer. I'm like, bro, yeah. that don't happen to the rest of us. Yeah. <laughs> We don't well, do that. I'm sitting yeah. in, in the back with the shitty people who don't have money. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Sorry, he went to Jamaica. Not gonna apologize. He went to Jamaica. He's been out of the country. I, I've been to places, but I don't know that I sat next to writers. I did get mistaken for a Ravens player though, and that felt really good nice. when I was younger and a little bigger. Uh, no, Bruce, I I can't say enough. Just from being a guy in your peripheral recovery life, right? Like I can't say enough about all the effort you've put in over the course of the years to try to give back and help people. And I, I just, I thank you for that. So thank you for driving up here and talking about your book. Appreciate you guys thank having you for all the yeah. work you've done. One Promise by Rafael Alvarez. Oh, shit. Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. One Promise is the program if you're yeah. needing help around the Baltimore area. Yeah. Yeah. Don't count me out to book. You can get it on Amazon. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. And man. I got to make one more admission before we close. So I'll, I'll sometimes reference you. People ask me to share sometimes and I'll come up and, and I'll say, you know, I wish I had my friend Bruce's story where I'm getting like <laughs> shot by the SWAT team and years in prison and all that stuff. You know, when I first got in recovery, I was real intimidated like 
I thought that's what I needed to earn a seat in Narcotics Anonymous. And I, because I was just some middle class white kid doing dumb shit and getting locked up for 30 days, you know, I didn't feel like I had done enough. Um, so everybody has a story that's worthwhile and Absolutely. interesting and everybody, you know, if you find yourself in a meeting or a place like we've all earned our pain here, you know, but I do appreciate you sharing your story. It's I an awesome story. You. I appreciate you guys. I love all you guys. Yeah, you know, it, it's cool to come out here and, uh, I'm glad I came out and we didn't just do it on the phone. I wanted to be lazy, but <laughs> <laughs> I really did. It, it, the whole thing is my life looks like it does. Cause I've said no to what I wanted to do and did what I had to do. Probably a half a million times, right. you know, and, uh, it's that saying no to what I want to do. Hmm. Don't want to have to do. It has got me to sit here today. That's it's so fascinating because it's doing what I want to do and not what I have to do <laughs> that has got me sitting here today. And it's incredible that we can come from two different angles and yet both end up really, really happy and fulfilled. He's in always life. been difficult. <laughs> always. All right, everybody, uh, go out there, get Don't Count Me Out, check it out. It's on Audible, it's in Amazon, it's anywhere you can buy books. Get the physical copy, get the Audible copy, whatever makes you happy. The narrator's um, not too bad in the Audible. Oh, yeah, the narrator's nice. I listen to a lot of audiobooks and they generally suck. And this one is, uh, this one's really nice to listen to. So check that out. We will have links to that right underneath this episode if you're interested. And, uh, you know, just keep living and, and doing the thing out there, spreading the Thank message. Thank you guys like Bruce. so much. Thank you, Bruce. Thank you, Bruce. Thanks, people. Did you like this episode? Share it with people you think might get something out of it. Check out the rest of our episodes at recoverysortof.com. Also, while you're there, you can find ways to link up with us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Reddit, YouTube, anything. We're always looking for new ideas. Got an idea you want us to look into? Reach out to us.